Welcome to the third episode of Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where Lindsay and I talk with people about their favorite manuscripts and why they love them. Unfortunately, Lindsay was ill on the day we recorded, so for today's episode, it's just me talking to Megan Cook about Chaucer, weird spelling, and the long history of her favorite manuscript, MSGG 4271, a 15th century English manuscript from the collection of the Cambridge University Library. Good morning or afternoon, I don't know. We are here with Megan Cook to talk about her favorite manuscript. Uh, Megan Cook is Associate Professor of English at Colby College. She teaches medieval literature, focusing on Chaucer and other late medieval poets. And she also has expertise on the reception of Middle English texts and books in the early modern period and in the history and study of the material book. She edits and writes and lectures widely, and we are very pleased that she has agreed to take some time to come on with us and tell us about her favorite manuscript. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm really happy to be here and talk about my favorite manuscript. Yes. So what is it? What is this? I don't know anything about it, by the way. I haven't looked at it. So, Well, you're in luck because I have so much to tell you about this manuscript. (laughs) So the manuscript I'm going to talk about today currently lives at uh, Cambridge University Library, will presumably be there for the foreseeable future, where it has the shelf mark GG4271. So in the interest of not spending all of our conversation repeating that shelf mark, I'll just call it GG. Moving forward, it is a large English manuscript made probably at the end of the first quarter of the 15th century that is interesting to me and other scholars of Middle English poetry because it is a large compendium of works mostly by Chaucer. So it has kind of his greatest hits. It's got Trillis and Crusade. It's got the Canterbury Tales, as well as some other other works that we can talk about more. So it's a, it's a big, chonky book. It's one of the ones where you go into the reading room and they see that you called it up and like someone has to come and bring over an extra large set of supports so that you can use it right. safely, uh, which is always... A, She's like holding her hands out like <laughs> wide. So this is like, it's not like just, it's not only thick, it's like actually like big, heavy, big book. Yeah, so it's 517 folios. So uh, manuscript people count folios, which is just the front and the back. So that's actually going to be closer to a little over a thousand pages, the way that we would count them today. The dimensions are about 18 centimeters by 31 centimeters. And I was thinking, Doc, because we had talked about needing to convey to people um, the appearance of these things without actually using images. Mm-hmm. I just Googled like what is 18 centimeters by 31 centimeters. And most of what came up was either cutting boards or serving platters. Oh, so wow. if you can imagine something that size, but uh, consisting of 500 sheets of vellum stacked up, you'll have a rough idea. That's pretty big. It's also currently in this white leather binding. It's very like... Cadillac car seat. It's very, very deluxe. Mm -hmm. It's just a fun, substantial book. That's really cool. So the binding, is it, that sounds like it's probably a newer 
binding? Yeah, um, I think it was Last Rebound um, in the 1980s. It definitely has a sort of like late 20th century deluxe vibe Mm -hmm. to it, but it's been rebound um, many, many times over its, its history. And we can, we can get into some of that a little bit later, if you like. Cool. Very good. All right. So what about the inside? So it's got it. So it's got these a lot of these texts by Chaucer. Does it is it only Chaucer? or Is there other stuff in there besides Chaucer? So there are a few other things in there besides Chaucer. It's got some shorter poems that are kind of Chaucerian. So there's a poem uh, written on the death of Edward the Fourth who died in 1483, so during Chaucer's lifetime, and it's sung by birds. So one of Chaucer's most famous poems is The Parliament of Fowls. Right. Does not appear in this manuscript, but you can see that this is a poem that's kind of like in that vein. Um, It also contains a poem by a poet named John Lydgate, who was a little bit younger than Geoffrey Chaucer and really admired him. And this poem, which is called The Temple of Glass, is is kind of a um, homage to Chaucer's greatest hits. Mm-hmm. So it's not everything in the book is written by Chaucer, but the idea of the kind of poetry that Geoffrey Chaucer wrote is the governing idea of the book, I would say. I have so many questions. So do we know who wrote the manuscript? Is there one scribe or are there multiple scribes? Do we know who like planned it? Because clearly it was planned. But do we know anything about that process? Uh, We don't know a lot directly, which is pretty typical for English manuscripts from this period, especially if they were produced as this one seems to have been outside of London, which was the center of the bookmaking world in England at that time. So you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. It does seem to have been a book made to order by someone with an interest in Chaucer and uh, his writings. There's a couple of things that are unusual about this and have. there's been a lot of scholarly attention um, dedicated to kind of sorting them out since this manuscript came to the attention of textual scholars in the middle of the 19th century. So one of the unusual things about this is the spelling. So we have two scribes who are working on this manuscript, um, but most of it is written by just one, one person, one dude. And he spells things very oddly. Now, if anybody listening is familiar with Middle English, they will know that spelling things oddly is sort of the the normal node for (laughs) Middle English because there's not really standardized spelling. Everything is very dialect oriented. So a scribe will write using the spelling that most closely resembles the way that they pronounce English. And that can vary a lot from place to place. Now, whatever our guy is choosing to do does not fit super easily into any of the familiar uh, profiles of how someone from London might write or how someone from the Midlands might write. Frederick Furnival, who was a Chaucerian scholar in the 19th century, even suggested that the spelling here is so weird that it might have been written by someone who didn't actually speak English or had learned English as an adult and was just kind of trying to, to make sense of things. That's interesting. 
Yeah, I, people have walked back on that, I think, wisely uh, over the years, but it does seem like it comes from the Midlands. So a little bit farther north than we are seeing most of the early surviving Chaucer manuscripts um, come from. So this is exciting for people like me who study the transmission of Chaucer's works because we can see that it's already spreading out into other parts of the country. Now, what we do with that uh, spelling, um, how you, you handle that when you're trying to make sense of, of how it should look if you're editing the material, um, there are still some open-ended questions there. So we don't exactly know where it came from. Someone must have asked for it. The other thing um, that is worth thinking about in this capacity is that the book has really pretty decorations in it. Um, mm -hmm. Not all of those survive today, and I want to talk a little bit more about that later, but someone was clearly willing to sink a fair amount of resources into this manuscript. And I am not an art historian. Decorated manuscripts are not my bread and butter, but people have noted that even though this is a manuscript that seems to have been produced in the early 15th century, the drawings and the illumination are kind of old fashioned. So this suggests someone with a particular set of literary and aesthetic tastes. We just don't know exactly who it was. And that's, that's pretty common for an English manuscript from this period to have these sort of tantalizing clues that don't add up to a definitive answer. Right. So I just want to say that we will have images, you know, photos of these in the show notes. So we will have this. So if after listening to this, you want to go and see what we're talking about, you can do that. And the second question, just to get the timeline right. So this manuscript was written, at, you said, like, sort of after the first quarter of the 15th century. So like 1425 around there. So I would say around 1425. Some people okay. would argue you know, five or 10 years earlier or later. Sorry, and just Chaucer wrote when? This was after Chaucer was dead. Okay. okay. <laughs> yes, yes. So that was the other thing that was important to, to note, that Chaucer dies in 1400. And we don't have any manuscripts that we know were made during his lifetime. The two most famous manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales Ellesmere and Hengart uh, almost certainly come from same period, perhaps a little bit earlier. I'm so scared that like hardcore manuscript dating people are going to listen to this podcast and say, well, so-and-so has argued, you know, five years for, or, um, you know, before or after, but right. we're talking early 15th century when the earliest manuscripts we have. And, and so this is a, a pretty early Chaucer manuscript. Right. And a reminder, if you're listening to this and you are a very hardcore manuscript dating person, this is a fun podcast and we're just talking about manuscripts we love and it's okay if we all don't agree, it's fine. <laughs> so, all right. So I'm just going to ask you to tell me something else cool. Let's keep going. Yeah. So we've already touched on one of my favorite things because I study the ways that 
author's canons get formed, the way that we come to an idea of like what literature is and what poetry is. So the fact that um, we have a whole bunch of poems from Chaucer in one place, his major works collected, means that people are starting to think about Chaucer as the kind of author that you you want to have everything that this guy wrote, mm-hmm. which is not something that people have been doing for English authors for a long time. So it's, it's a really interesting document in the history of people thinking about authorship and canon and the idea that you would want to, you know, make sure that you have not only worked on a particular topic or in a particular style, but oriented around a particular author. So that's one reason I think this is just a really important book in the history of 15th century English literature. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think, or one of the many other things I think is really interesting about it, I've talked a little bit already about the unusual spelling Mm -hmm. here. And so one of the other things I do, in addition to writing about the transmission of poetry, is, is actually edit text. And so with Ryan Perry at the University of Denver, I've been working on a critical edition of The Legend of Good Women, which is one of the Chaucer poems in this manuscript. And if it's okay with you, I can just talk a little bit about what's unusual about this manuscript's copy of the poem and why I think it's it's compelling, why I, it's a problem that I love to think about, right? Yeah, so tell us maybe what the poem is and then how this one is particularly interesting. Right, so The Legend of Good Women is a poem by Geoffrey Chaucer where he is taking material, a lot of it comes from Ovid's Heroides, uh, which is a series of uh, poems, verse epistles, written in the voices of women um, like Medea, like Cleopatra, mm-hmm like Lucrece, who have had men do terrible things to them. And this is them kind of recounting their sorry tales. And, you know, I'm saying Cleopatra and Medea. So there are some people who pop up in here who are not getting the usual treatment, right? This is a a fairly sympathetic portrayal. Um, Dido is also in there. And so the Chaucer's poem, The Legend of Good Women, is in English, um, is adapting these stories along with um, other materials written after Ovid, right, about these women. Um, So it's a collection of these legends, there's 13, and then a prologue. And it's not, I would say, one of Chaucer's greatest hits. There's a lot of controversy over whether it's actually finished um, or whether he just got bored and quit working on it, whether it's meant to be a parody. I've been there. I know what that's like. Relatable, (laughs) relatable. But one of the really interesting things about this poem is that it has a prologue. And the prologue is really influenced by French poetry that Chaucer was reading right around the time that he wrote this material. Um, where you've got this narrator who sounds a lot like Chaucer and the way he writes about himself in other poems. He falls asleep, he wakes up, uh, he encounters the god of love and his consort Alceste, and it's a very scary moment for the poet narrator because the god of love says, I am really angry with you and I 
think you need to be punished because you have translated the Roman de la Rose, which is a French poem about love and many other things. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, written Troilus and Crusade. Um, and all of this is going to make men trust women less. So that's a bad thing. And mm-hmm. in the prologue, the God of Love's consort, Alceste, intervenes and says, no, instead of like executing this man for his crimes, what if instead he spends the rest of his life writing poems about good women? And the God of Love says, that is so interesting. That's such an interesting frame. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot going on um, with that. And um, people have written about how this very authoritarian version of the God of Love sounds a lot like Richard II, who was, you know, king at the time and uh, exhibiting certain authoritarian tendencies of his own. Um, And Alceste sounds a lot like Anne of Bohemia, uh, who uh, Richard was married to. So the version of this prologue in Gigi, as it turns out, is not the same version that is found in all of the other manuscripts of this poem. Mm -hmm. So this is something that was noticed in the middle of the 19th century, actually when around the same time the book was being rebound and other things were, were happening to it. And so people said, huh, what's going on here? And this opened up a debate about um, whether what we have in the G manuscript is Chaucer's original version of the poem and everything else is a revision mm-hmm. or whether the other version, the, which exists in, um, I think, 12 manuscripts is the original and and this is a revision so is it the same like the prologue is the same story it's just different it's like he rewrote it yeah so some stuff has been moved around some stuff has been added some stuff has been deleted one of the most um important changes for scholars thinking about this is that it takes out this request that when the poem is done, Chaucer give it to the queen at Elfenham or Sheen, which were two palaces. And in the G version, that Mm. request is omitted. Mm. So there was a lot of controversy in the late 19th, early 20th century about which one comes first. The general consensus seems to be that even though G G is an older manuscript than the other surviving copies of the poem. It actually represents a later revision mm-hmm. of the prologue that was made after Anna Bohemia died. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to remind your patron um, of his dead wife in your poem if you're you're wanting it to be you know warmly uh, received. Right. And I just love it because it it represents. So much of what is like weird and challenging and interesting about working with manuscripts. So ordinarily, if you're editing a text, you would say, I want the oldest manuscript because that's what's most likely to be what the author originally wrote. Right. So people who study manuscripts will talk how about how 
errors get introduced Mm -hmm. over a period of time. It's like a game of telephone. So you want to go back to like the first step in transmission. But in this case, we have the earliest manuscript seems to um, represent the latest version of the text, Mm -hmm. which opens up a whole other debate about whether the quote unquote final or truest version of the poem uh, is a revision that seems like it could have been made in response to political or circumstantial changes. Um, And so this is a subjective thing that there's no one answer to, like what is the right version um, of the, the poem? Is it the oldest book? Is it the newest version of the text? Um, and so that's a fun thing. I love teaching this um, because you get to have students debate, right, which one they want to read, which one makes the most sense. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that if it is the later one, it sounds like it never got copied because mm-hmm. you have this other one that has 12 you said like 12 copies and presumably if the first copies of those are being made around the same time that this one was made, then the other ones are all later. Mm-hmm. And so you have, it's, I'm, I'm imagining like a tree with branches and you've got like one little twig over here. And then like the other branch goes woo off this way. It's just, such, it's just so interesting. I mean, this, I know that like I work with this stuff. So like, I know that this happens, but it's so neat to like hear it in this like new example, new to me example of like, what catches on and what doesn't and what get copied and what doesn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great example of that. All right. So that's the legend of good women, which is very cool. What's next. We can talk about whatever you want. Um, so my absolute, so you asked me before I came on to tell you three things that I loved about this manuscript Did. and the canon formation stuff is great. And the like wonkiness with the legends of good women stuff is fantastic. But what I really, really, really want to talk about what I really love about this manuscript is its transmission history. So can we talk about that? Do it. I want to know all about it. All right. All right. So I mentioned um, earlier that this manuscript has pictures in it, which if uh, anyone out here listening spends a lot of time with 15th century English manuscripts, you will know that they do not usually have pictures. So it's very exciting for me when I get to work with something where I have pictures. And so here um, it might be helpful to actually talk about um, what we're seeing if we open up the manuscript. So as I said earlier, um, I'm looking just at the the very first page. All right. This is the front page. Yeah. So I'm going to open this up. Megan very helpfully gave me a nice list. So I just opened the very first one. Ooh, that's pretty. Yeah. Do you want to sort of describe what you're seeing? Yeah. So it is a page of, it's clearly poetry because we have like sections of text like there are like four sections of text and they don't go margin to margin it's like lines of poetry with I guess eight eight lines for each section and at the very top there is a nice looking initial that's just it's like a an illuminated initial a I think and it's blue, and then I can see there's gold around it, and there's sort of foliation inside. There's blue and red foliation. And the foliation 
sort of goes down the left side of the page. It goes all the way down, sort of forming an edge that the um, the text sort of butts up against. And for each section of text divides, there's a little red foliation that sort of comes up. And it's sort of it's sort of showing you that here's where, I guess, like where the text divides. It goes all the way down to the bottom. And then the blue goes all the way down. And then there's another thing of red that goes into the bottom margin. And then it breaks off, I guess, branches off. And you've got red and blue uh, leaves and the, there are also leaves I think in the top margin and the same kind of way yeah so it branches off and then at the top there's blue letters that it looks like it says Chaucer's ABC there which is maybe later I can't tell yes okay so that it's written in like this peacock blue ink. And you can see that whereas the writing on the main part of the page, it's a little bit spiky. It's quite compressed. Mm-hmm. Where it says Chaucer's ABC, it almost looks like it's in all caps. Yep. And it's written in a really smooth hand. And that's because that was added in about the year 1600. Okay. And if you go all the way down to the lower margin, and you may or may not be able to see this, there's a a kind of blank area right below, there's like that red branch that extends. Mm -hmm. If you look below that, you might be able to see that there's something that's been erased there. Something erased, let me see. I can't, oh! Yeah, I do see that. And it looks like similar to what was written at the top. Yep. It looks the same, but it's, yeah, yeah. I can't read it though. So I will tell you what it said there. Okay. And I will also tell you that I went looking for this note the first time I actually got to see this manuscript in person and I couldn't find it. I was like, it's supposed to be there. It's, it's not there. It says Joseph Holland, 1600. And so the earliest um, person we know who owned this manuscript was Joseph Holland, an antiquarian and a member of the Inner Temple, which is a law school, was a law school um, in London. And that has been subsequently erased, but he's a really important figure in the history of this manuscript. Mm -hmm. So we looked at the decoration um, and we looked at like, he signed it. He's like put in the title. Chaucer's ABC is the title of that first poem. Okay. Um, I want now to, I'll put it in the chat here. Mm-hmm. Get your sense of what we're looking at with this page, which is from the Canterbury Tales. Oh, yes. I can tell. I, I would have guessed that if you hadn't told me, because there is a person, there is a drawing at the top of a person sitting on a horse. That's a nice looking horse. So it is similar to the other one in that you have this sort of foliated gold and red and blue going down the left side of the page. And then across the, uh, that when you get to the bottom margin, you also have it, although it looks, I mean, it's a different kind of style. I'll put links to these in the show notes so you can see them too. The text looks the same. You still have these sort of groups of, eight lines together. I I forgot to mention, but the first letter of each line has a little bit of red 
in there, which we call rubrication. So a little bit of rubrication. But what's really notable is at the very top, whereas the other page had an illuminated initial, this one has a drawing of a big brown horse. It's really nicely done. And it, there's a person sitting on the horse and they're wearing a brown, like a brown coat or or maybe, a, I, I don't know what to call it, uh, but a long brown fabric that sort of falls down the sides of the horse and a black hat and their face is kind of hidden. So you can just see their little nose and their chin and their mouth, but you can't see anything else of them. It's kind of mysterious, but... I like that. I love this. This is Chaucer's monk, and it is the like most badass image of um, a monk riding a horse that I've ever seen. He looks like, it's, it's like Zorro or something. He's got this wide brimmed <laughs> hat and his big cloak. Um, and you can compare it to the images of the pilgrims from if you have an image in your head of what Chaucer's pilgrims look like, it probably mm-hmm. comes from the Ellesmere. Manuscript of the Canterbury Tales. Um, everyone in the Canterbury Tales is sort of, I don't know, in mm. the Ellesmere, um, a little bit cutesy. I don't, this is its own thing, right? Is mm-hmm. is what I think um, is important to mention here. And I want to show you one other image uh, before we get to the upsetting part. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have eased me into it. You're easing me into it. And then I'm going <laughs> to get, ooh. It's right here. So... These images, or this next page that I'm going to ask Dot to describe, comes from Chaucer's Parson's Tale. And the Parson's Tale, it's the last of the Canterbury Tales. It's a sermon on penance, and uh, it talks a lot about virtues and vices. So this set of images, it appears on a couple of different pages, is unique in Canterbury Tales manuscripts. We don't usually ever get pictures within the tales, but we do hear, which suggests that someone was asking for them. So do you want to tell us what we're looking at? Yes, I will. This is delightful. So we have, again, just the same foliation on the sides and on the top and bottom margin. There is an illuminated initial towards the bottom. It looks like there's a different text that sort of starts in the bottom quarter of the page. But right above that, So there's a few lines of text at the top, and then the text ends, and then we have these illustrations, colorful, there's very green. So there's a woman, I think that's a woman, in a green dress, and she has this big green hat on her head that's a very wide sort of low hat, and she is sitting on a white goat. So there's this goat, and he's got these very impressive horns that go way back from his head. But she's just sitting on him. And her arm, her right arm, is held out. And it looks like there's something hanging from her wrist on a chain. Her sleeve is blue. So where the rest of her is sort of green. There's And it looks like there's some lighter color that's sort of lining her dress. Mm-hmm. But her hand is held out. And there's a bird sitting on her hand. And... She's holding, I, actually, I see now she's holding the goat's horns with her other hand. And I think maybe she's got glasses on. I don't know if you're going to talk about that, but she's got like round things around her eyes. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not actually sure if those are meant to be. Okay. Possibly some aggressive contouring. Oh, could be. Going on. Who is this figure? So it's there. Yeah. It, there's a name lit. 
I can't read it. I'm so terrible. She is lechery. Oh, lechery. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. <laughs> Which is why she's, she's sitting on this goat, right? Which is a symbol for sexual appetite and why she's got this like very loose, very sexy she is very green sexy. gown going on. <laughs> And she's not alone, right? She's not alone. No. And I know who that other that other figure is. <laughs> that, that's got to be Chastity, right? <laughs> so Chastity is standing standing uh, next to Lechery, and Chastity is wearing. All, there's also some green, but it's mostly covered with red. It's like they've got a red cloak on, and there is, I think, a lion. They're standing on a lion. I think so. I think that's a, you know, a not a lion in the sense right. that one gets. Like it's supposed to be a lion, but the person who drew it has never actually seen one. And so. I, I think it's emotionally yes. um, a lion. Emotionally yeah. a lion. Um, and they're holding a cross a, and it's a big long cross because it goes down through the lion's mouth and out the other side. Is it, Are they supposed to be stabbing the lion? I can't actually tell if that's, maybe it's behind the lion's head. Um, I think this is like a reworking of the imagery, the iconography you often see with St. George and the, the dragon. Oh, yes. That makes a lot of sense. Or, or Michael mm-hmm. and the dragon. Like, it's a very familiar sort of posture of victory. Right. As she's standing on this notional lion to demonstrate her her virtue. Yeah. So we have these. Wow. Totally. Um unparalleled, unattested anywhere else. Images from the Parsons Tale. We've got some some fairly cool pilgrim portraits uh, within, right, the, the text itself. And now this next image I'm going to send you is from the beginning of the Canon's Yeoman's Tale. And I want you to tell me what you see there. What I see is that somebody has cut something out. So the top, it all, it looks very similar. Although I have to say like each page, the foliation is, yeah, is slightly different. Like the way mm-hmm. that, that, that blue and red and red and gold is done is, is and so that's interesting because I'm used to seeing it all the same, but at the top left where I would expect to see an uh, illuminated initial, instead the parchment has been cut or I, I can't tell. Cut or maybe even ripped yeah. out. Um, it's very sad. So there's a big hole. And so now I'm going to show you the beginning of Troilus and Crusade, where we would expect to find a full page illustration. Is this the part that you said was going to upset me? Oh, oh, no, there's nothing there. There's no page. The whole leaf is gone. Oh no! There's nothing at all. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> oh. So this seems to have been the situation by the time that Joseph Holland came to own this book in 1600. Oh, we don't wow. know exactly when or why this material was removed. Although clearly, there are probably well executed um, miniatures and illuminations on these missing pages that someone wanted to do something else with. Um, I think it's important to remember, we like to talk about like 18th, 19th, 20th century people um, slicing up manuscripts, you know, taking out the pretty pictures um, and leaving the rest. 
it's important to remember that this has been going on for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. around about 1600, Joseph Holland gets this like big honking book of Chaucer, very old, very cool, missing the best parts. <laughs> so what he does um, is uh, he goes and gets a hold of sheets of parchment that are the same size um, as this book. And if anyone out there knows where circa 1600, you're going to go to source parchment of this size, please let me know. I have some theories, but I haven't been able to track it down. And he has his scribe, the same guy who you saw write that very nice Chaucer's ABC in the blue ink. Mm -hmm. He has his scribe get a copy of a printed edition of Chaucer's works that had just come out in 1598. And he has his scribe copy over all of the missing pieces. Because even if you take out, for example, the front page illumination for Troilus and Crusade, um, that means you lose the last page of whatever comes before. Right. Um, so I showed you the example from the Canon's Yeoman's Tale you're missing not only what's on the front of that page, but on the back of the page. So you've got all of these like gaps. And so Holland has his scribe diligently copy things down, mostly diligently. There's like at least one moment where he accidentally <laughs> repeats a couple of lines um, and has them bound in. So he is rehabbing this book to make it readable all the way through for the first time in like probably decades. Mm -hmm. um, and he takes enough care, I love this, to get the, the parchment, right? So there's an attention not only to the project of this book, like you want a collection of Chaucer's works, well, you got to be able to read them. Mm -hmm. But he's also, you know, this is a man, 1600, he's living in a world of, of where printed books are, are plentiful. He's using a printed book as a copy, but he's like, no, I want this to be on parchment that looks the same. Mm -hmm. as it does uh, in the original manuscript, which I think is just great. But he doesn't stop there because this 1598 edition of Chaucer's Collected Works that I mentioned, it was put out by a man named Thomas Fay. It's, it's one of um, a series that come out over the course of the 16th century, all kind of celebrating this idea of Chaucer as a foundational English poet but also all having to cope with the fact that Chaucer's works are getting older and older and they're mm -hmm. no longer as immediately accessible as they would have been. So Spate's edition um, has this like fancy title page. It has a biography of Chaucer. It has essentially blurbs in it where uh, Spate has gone and picked out from Lydgate, uh, Thomas Hockleaf, who's another 15th century poet, but all the way up to people like um, Edmund Spencer, all of the best things people have said uh, about Chaucer <laughs> and, and puts them in. And so Joseph Holland has his scribe uh, copy over some of this preparatory material as well. So you're in this very weird position where as Holland tries to conserve this 15th century manuscript, mm -hmm. he understands it as an effort, I think I would argue, to be this idea of the collected works of Chaucer. But his idea of what the collected works of Chaucer should look like is actually informed by printed material. By the printed. 
That's fantastic. So he does this at the beginning um, and he does this at the end. Um, and there's my, I just took two images that are in the document I sent you earlier because this stuff hasn't been digitized. Oh, um, right. And actually, let's talk about the, the second one first. Okay. Uh, the colorful one. All right. Let me see. Oh, okay. I, th I think I see it. That's Chaucer. That is Chaucer in the middle. Yeah. So what is happening here is Joseph Holland, owner of 15th century book, takes 16th century printed edition of Chaucer. It's got this incredibly intricate engraving at the beginning that shows it's a full length portrait of Chaucer. Mm -hmm. He's got um, his penknife and a rosary is going to help you identify oh, him. Oh, he does. Um, he is standing yeah. on the tomb of uh, his son, um, Thomas Chaucer, who was a, a pretty successful politician, and his wife. Um, all of those shields around the bottom are letting you know how Chaucer's family has been connected to various important families. Mm -hmm. And then around that, there is a family tree of Chaucer right. um, that I, I don't want to get into the weeds too much here, but it makes the suggestion that Chaucer's family is connected to the houses of both Lancaster and York. So there's a huge argument being made here that not only is our guy Chaucer like an excellent poet, he is also just like a really important dude, uh, full stop. And the, the artist who did this illustration, um, his name is John Speed. Uh, he was a famous map maker. He also did a very similar set of tables for the uh, King James Version of the Bible. So Thomas Speed really pulling in the best of the best here to make this argument about basically why you should buy his edition of, of, of Chaucer's works, right? <laughs> so, so in the 17th century... Joseph Holland takes this 16th century engraving and puts it in his 15th century books. Mm -hmm. So different layers are getting piled on top of one another. But the other thing he does that I love is that he colors it in. It's not colored in in any other um, version um, of this that I've seen. Um, it's just this wonderful, you know, it's picking up on the fact that there is decoration in the manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's celebrating Chaucer. You know, it's not enough just to, to put in this um, engraving. He wants to make it even fancier, even more celebratory. Um, and I will tell you, I long, long before I finished writing my book on Chaucer, and antiquarians in the 16th and 17th century when I was doing research. The very first time I saw this image, I was not expecting it, did not know it was in the document, mm -hmm. turned the page and said, I want this to be on the cover of my book. And uh -huh. thank you, um, Cambridge <laughs> University Library. It is on the, it is on the cover. It is on the cover of my book. But I just love how many layers right, uh -huh. are happening here um, as this manuscript, like, makes its way from past to present. Yeah. So will I be able to put this photo in the show notes so people can see this? <laughs> okay. And the other thing I just, you were you were saying that, that it's colored in and none of the other ones are colored in. And it's that you think it's because of the color that you, the rest of the manuscript has this color. I want to point out that he's wearing red and blue and all of the shields are red and blue. And 
if you look, I've been saying this, like in the manuscript pages, the decoration is primarily red and blue. Like, I don't actually know if the person who did this was like, oh, red and blue. Maybe that's just happenstance. But I do think it's interesting that there's so much red and blue happening here. I love it. Like the use of parchment, there's just like um, an awareness of the material uh, mm -hmm. nature of the manuscripts that I find really compelling. Uh, the colors on the shields are, as far as I've been able to tell, accurate. Uh, so he's not that's just so uh, interesting. So they're very specific. Um, yeah. And well known right? because he's connecting these to like John of Gaunt is in there, like big name guys. But he's taking the time to, to, to do it accurately. So again, we've got this like recursive moment where he wants to preserve something that's old and to know how to do it. He's looking at something newer and at the same time, right, bringing in all of this accumulated ideas of what an edition of Chaucer needs to look like. Mm -hmm. At the back, he also adds more materials, the most interesting of which to me I've put an image from in that document, mm -hmm. which one of the things that Spades Edition adds is a glossary, right? Because people are having a harder time understanding Chaucer than they, they used to. I have some real questions about how um, helpful this glossary actually uh -huh. was. Um, if anyone out there has learned Chaucer using the Riverside Chaucer, which was the standard edition for a long, long time, uh, you may be surprised to learn that there's a large glossary in the back. I never knew when I was a student. Uh, it's not necessarily the most helpful way to navigate mm -hmm. a text, but Thomas Bate included it, and it was important enough to Joseph Holland that he wanted to, to, to have it for his, whoever was going to use GG in the future. So he's creating this version of the manuscripts that is repairing uh, things that have happened to it in the past, mm -hmm. making it a readable book. At the same time, he is adding new material to it, which to me suggests that he had an understanding of what the original manuscript was intended to be, right? A collection of Chaucer's works, mm -hmm. but felt that there was a gap between what that concept was in 1600 and what was done in 15, you know, or sorry, 1420 or whenever the, the book was originally made. So I just love this as an episode in the early modern mediation of the medieval past because it shows that it could be careful, uh, that it could be creative, and that it could also take you in sort of directions that were completely above and beyond what the original material would be. Mm -hmm. Now, you will notice I had to shift you over to another document to look at these images from the 17th century material because they're not included in the digital facsimile from Cambridge that we've been referring to for the 15th century material. This is because um, in the 1870s, a librarian uh, named Henry Bradshaw, um, important guy in the history of manuscript studies at Cambridge, 
um, undertook a major reorganization and uh, reassessment of the manuscripts at Cambridge. So Holland owns the book uh, at the beginning of the 17th century. It seems to have passed from him to another guy who was a fellow at Emmanuel College, I'm almost positive, um, but also uh, Sir Robert Cotton's chaplain. So we're moving through fairly high level. Right. Uh, Robert Cotton, um, big time manuscript collector, uh, the cotton of the cotton collection. Right. At the British Library, right? Yeah, which includes things like Beowulf and you know, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and things like that. So, and it seems to move from there to the Cambridge collections pretty quickly. Cambridge collections were total myth by the middle of the 19th century. And Bradshaw says, we got to rebind these books. They're falling apart. We need to, you know, organize things. And so he does. And at that time, he takes out all of Holland's editions. I knew you were going to say that. I was waiting for you to say that. I was like, please don't say it. I I knew you were going to say it. And it makes me so mad. (laughs) It makes me so mad. Oh, my God. So they're no longer bound with the book. They have their own call number. Um, The 15th century material is GG4271A and GG4271B is the 17th century material, which is is now bound separately. Um, You have to call it up separately. You know, Malcolm Parks and Richard Beadle did a uh, print facsimile of this manuscript um, in 1980. And that does mm-hmm. include the the 15th century material, or sorry, the 17th century material, although in its own kind of supplementary mm. uh, space. And I'm really grateful that this material was saved. Mm-hmm. But it opens up for me such, and this is why I love this manuscript so much, is not because of, of what it is, but because of how many questions it's useful to think through. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it raises such interesting questions about what is a manuscript and what is a medieval manuscript that's passed through, you know, dozens of hands um, over its history. And into which people have have intervened in ways that we might endorse today um, mm-hmm. and in ways that um, we might not endorse today. So, you know, um, Holland's interventions, at least in some sense, are an attempt to undo the loss of material right. that happened probably in the late 15th or early 16th century. So, he himself, on the one hand, is trying to get back to the original state uh, of this manuscript, even as he's he's adding materials that are are clearly post medieval mm-hmm. um, and clearly not you know authentic or original to the manuscript. And if you set this aside, um, you do you are able to say, okay, this is the 15th century material that we do have. But you lose such an important part of the narrative about how mm-hmm. we, you know, how we access this this material today. Um, it's there. I hope they digitize it. But if you go to <laughs> to Cambridge, you can call it up and 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 you can see it. Um, but this is a like long and kind of shaggy dog story of a 
manuscript, but I think it's, it's so important um, as we approach questions of, you know, what does it mean that this is an early example of Chaucer's works, whatever that concept means. Um, and I think it's such an interesting, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, the, um, the way that this has this, um, you know, revised version of the prologue to the legend of good women, you know, if Holland had said, mm, this book, it's missing the pictures. I can't even read all the texts all the way through, like whatever. Right. We might not have any uh, witness to, to that chapter in the, the text history. So, you know, one of the reasons I love studying medieval manuscripts and particularly 15th century English ones is there's, so much we don't know, but we have so much we do know, um, and the chance to kind of assemble those stories, um, and the long stories, right? The stories that go into the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, um, the materials are there. Once you start calling up like curatorial files and like really reading, Mm -hmm. you know, like the 19th century catalog descriptions, there's just so much to learn about these books still, even though they've been around for a long, long time. Yeah. No, this is really fascinating. What I keep thinking of is the ways that people have been, have treated this book over the law, it's long history really shows the different ways that it's valued and what it's valued for. So the fact that in 1600, it was owned by a person who saw its value as a book that I can read and so I'm going to, you know, put in this the missing text and I'm going to add this, um, the glossary at the back to help people who maybe, can't, you know, now it's, it's much later. And so we can't read the Middle English the way we used to, you know, because language has changed. And so its value was as like a usable book versus into the 19th century where its value is as an early is an early manuscript. And so these later things that were put in to make it usable for the people at that time just become, you know, at least they didn't throw it away. As you said, like they, they did keep it, but it wasn't considered to be part of the manuscript because the manuscript is the stuff that was written at first. And that's why we value it because it's this early example of Chaucer. And I think as, you know, we are now working with manuscripts today and we have a, you know, I think we've shifted back to valuing changes that were made over time and, and thinking about like the long history of the book, but maybe it'll go back again, you know, in another hundred years, I don't know, these things are going to be around. So I just, and it's such a great, it's such a great example. I can see why you, why you love this one so much. Yeah. Folks listening can't see, but I've been nodding very enthusiastically um, to everything Dot has, has just been saying. So yeah. Yeah. I wish that Lindsay was here. So Lindsay, Lindsay wasn't able to make it today because she's not feeling well. So we went ahead and, and uh, went without her. And I wish she was here because I know that she would have a million questions for you that I, I don't know what she, what she would want to ask you. I'm going to see if I can think of anything. I don't know. Are there other manuscripts that you've worked with that have sort of similar things like how remarkable is this manuscript versus others in terms of later interventions and 
later interventions that were then taken out? So I don't know of anything that has this substantive um, of additions made um, to it uh, that are then later on removed. So I think it's it's unusual in that sense, but certainly, you know, one of the things I, I talked really positively um, about Holland, but one of the other things he did was he cleaned the manuscript. And uh, when the manuscript was cleaned, it's clear we can't really read them, um, but it's clear that a lot of marginal notations and other materials oh, no. were mm-hmm. taken away, um, right. which sucks. And it's a very familiar story to anyone who's who's worked with, with manuscripts, right? Whether mm-hmm. the editions are made in the 15th century or the 17th century, um, Odds are are good uh, that they have been at least attempted to be removed mm-hmm. at some point. So I think one of the reasons that we have such a complete picture of what Holland did with this book is because someone cut out the pictures in the first place. So it's not like his interventions were being made on the page uh, in the manuscript mm-hmm. for the most part, um, but they were actually being made with something that can be removed. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some great instances of, of marginalia and stuff that manages to stick around in Chaucer manuscripts. So the most famous Chaucer manuscript is probably the Ellesmere Canterbury Tales manuscript, which is at um, the Huntington Library in California now. And there's there's marginalia there. I think it's in three different spots that says uh, Marjorie St. John is a shrew. Um, I don't know who Marjorie was. I don't know who wrote that. Um, but because of where those, um, it's on the fly leaves. And I think there's one in the, the, the middle of the foot. Oh, it's written multiple times. It's written multiple times. And, you know, it's just by luck that that's hung out there. The last time I was at the Huntington um, so they had the manuscript on display in a special case, right? In this like, you know, room of treasures. And I was in there one time and they had it open to the flyleaf where you could see all of these, you know, it seems like they were probably adolescents mm-hmm. writing in this book in the 16th or 17th century. I forget the exact date. And I just thought, oh man, imagine like this is this is your trip, right? Like you are going to go to the Huntington Library and you are going to see, you know, that famous, iconic Canterbury Tales manuscript and you go and it's just open to a page of, of a bunch of post-medieval teenagers um, writing snarky notes uh, <laughs> to one another. But, you know, like as a manuscript scholar, I live for these moments because yeah. they they really remind you that these are living objects that, um, you know, play a variety of of roles in people's lives at different moments and in, in different ways. And it's great that we have this picture uh, of Gigi mm-hmm. at the moment of, of Holland's ownership. But I know that there's so much more out there that we don't have this kind of, of record that we can point to. Yeah. So our first episode, which is going to be, by the time this episode comes out, it will have been out for a few weeks, but it's going to be out on November 15th is Ali Alvis. And Mm -hmm. she actually, she cheated and talked about two manuscripts, but one of them is 
It's from the Hunterian Collection, and it's a manuscript that is notable primarily because children got a a hold on it and just drew all over it. So, which is like like that, only like all over. (laughs) And it's not, obviously, it's not the Ellesmere manuscript. It's some other thing that I can't even remember right now. But it's so interesting how these things were treated um, and I have to say, if I went to the Huntington Library to see that manuscript and I and all I got to see was the flyleaf of post-medieval, I would I would just be like utterly charmed. I think I would be very happy with that. But that's me. You know. Yeah, I think I think we're um, probably not. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. If people are going to see the, the manuscript, I, I suspect that they are like manuscript nerds uh like you and i are to a certain extent and um yeah. if that's the case I, I would hope that they appreciate i certainly approve of the decision to to display it so to display it even if people complain i'd be like well you just complain it's fine <laughs> yeah, the more you know uh, right like learn yeah. something new about a book all the time that is right and that's a good note i think to end on yeah are we Good to go? I think so. Thank you so much. Unless you have like another thing you have to you have to share. Well, I will say, um, if you do want to know lots more about Joseph Holland and what he did to that manuscript, I have published on it. Um, so I do have an article uh, called Joseph Holland uh, and the Idea of the Chaucerian Book that came out in Manuscript Studies a few years ago. And then if it's not too gosh, I can also plug my book, um, of course. which is The Poet and the Antiquaries. It came out uh, with the University of Pennsylvania Press uh, in 2019. And I talk about Joseph Holland at, um, at substantial length in that, that book. The, the editor did make me actually um, cut it down. So I was glad <laughs> to come here and share even more of my enthusiasm with them and talk all about it no that's great we'll put links in the in the show notes so anybody who wants to read more can get those easily excellent all right thank you so much megan this was really fun absolutely thank you thank you for listening to our conversation with megan during my introduction, I neglected to mention one of my favorite writings by Megan, her essay on dirtbag medievalism in the LA Review of Books, in which she talks about coming to medieval studies through medievalism and popular culture. I'll include a link to that essay in the show notes, along with photos from GG. If you're listening to this podcast, you're very likely going to appreciate the essay. Audio editing for today's show was by Gustavo Palacios Moy. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them. (laughs) 